0: Welcome to the final episode for 2021 in our series of audio briefings exploring key aspects of company law. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Suzanne Carney, of counsel in the Corporate and M&A Department in Arthur Cox.
1: I'm Ashley Carey, professional support lawyer in the Corporate and M&A Department in Arthur Cox.
2: And I'm Tom Courtney, partner in Arthur Cox.
1: Today as
0: part of our Company Law Back to Basics series, we are focusing on the topic of mergers involving private companies. As with other topics we've discussed in previous episodes, there are separate rules, practices and procedures which apply to mergers involving public companies, which it would not be possible to cover in sufficient detail in the time we've allocated today. In the last six years in particular, mergers have become a common feature of corporate reorganisations involving Irish companies. Indeed, most countries have a merger regime in place, and typically both a domestic regime and a cross-border regime. Ashley, where an Irish company wishes to carry out a merger, there are a number of different types of merger
1: it can undertake. Can you take us through what these are? That's right, Suzanne, and the form the merger will take will largely depend on where the other merging party is located. For example, a domestic merger can occur where each of the merging companies is Irish. A cross-border merger can occur where an Irish limited liability company is merging with a limited liability company from another EEA state and a foreign law contractual merger can take place where an Irish company is merging with a company from outside the EEA where there is no statutory merger regime in place between the two countries. We won't go into any detail on contractual mergers for the purposes of this podcast as they don't arise as frequently as the other types of merger and, as the name suggests, are largely a matter for contractual negotiation between the parties.
0: And Tom, is there a reason why mergers have become more popular here in recent years?
2: Well, prior to the introduction of the Companies Act 2014, there was no statutory regime in Irish law which allowed two or more Irish private companies to merge in the generally understood sense of the word. A similar result could be achieved by applying to the High Court to approve a scheme of arrangement. However, it was not until the Companies Act 2014 that we had statutory provisions specifically dealing with the merger of two Irish private companies. Prior to this, there were regulations governing mergers involving PLCs, but because of their limited range of companies to which they applied, they were rarely used. We also had, and still have, the European cross-border merger regime, which was introduced into Irish law in 2008, However, as Ashling mentioned, this requires one of the merging parties to be a limited liability company from another EEA state. So with the introduction of the Act and the availability of the summary approval procedure in particular, the number of mergers of Irish companies has increased significantly.
0: In relation to domestic and cross-border mergers, there are three different types of merger, each of which results in a transferor company or companies transferring all of their assets and liabilities to a successor company and being dissolved without going into liquidation. We will be using the terms transferor company and successor company throughout this podcast, so it might be helpful to explain what we mean by these terms. The transferor company is the company that will be ultimately dissolved as a result of the merger, while the successor company is the company which will survive the merger. Ashlyn, could you describe for us the three types of merger?
1: Sure, so firstly we have a merger by absorption. This is where the transfer or company is a 100% subsidiary of the successor company and merges into it. This type of merger is most often used for intergroup reorganizations because of the shareholding requirement and because there are fewer documents involved as we will discuss later. There is no requirement for the successor to issue any shares to the transfer or shareholders as it was already the shareholder. Secondly, there is a merger by acquisition. This is where the successor company acquires all of the assets and liabilities of another company or companies. This type of merger differs from a merger by absorption, as there is no requirement for a pre-existing shareholding relationship between the companies, and the successor company must issue shares to the shareholders of the transferor company or companies, and may also make a cash payment. The cash component would be very unusual in an intragroup scenario and would only be used for a third-party acquisition if a merger was ever used for this. Finally then, there is the merger by formation of a new company. As the name suggests, this involves the transfer or company or companies being merged into a new company that it or they form. Similar to a merger by acquisition, the new successor company will issue shares to the shareholders of the transferor company or companies and may also make a cash payment. This structure is not used as often as the other two, but is useful if you have lots of companies that need to merge into one or if you're doing a pre-sale reorg and want to hive out or segregate part of the business into a new company and sell that company.
2: Ashton has just alluded to one point that's worth mentioning at the outset. In practice, both domestic and cross-border mergers are really only used to tidy up group structures and are not typically used for third-party acquisitions. This is largely due to the fact that with a merger, shares are issued as part of the consideration, save for mergers by absorption. However, these would not be relevant to third-party acquisitions, given the shareholding requirement. In most private deals, cash would be the consideration of choice as the requirement to issue shares means there is no clean break for the successor company.
0: That's very true, Tom. However, even though they are not typically used for third-party acquisitions, mergers are an extremely popular and efficient way of tidying up a group structure and are viewed as more straightforward and cost-effective than some of the other options traditionally available. With a merger all of the assets and liabilities of the transferor transfer to the successor by operation of law. Therefore, while some level of due diligence will be involved, all contracts, agreements and instruments transfer to the successor without the requirement to obtain individual assignments. Finally, the transferor effectively disappears on completion of the merger. We might now look at domestic mergers in more detail. The provisions relating to domestic mergers are largely set out in Chapter 3 of Part 9 of the Companies Act in respect of private companies and in Chapter 16 of Part 17 in respect of PLCs. Ashling, are there any initial things that a company needs to consider before undertaking a domestic
1: merger? Yes, there are some basic things about the companies involved that need to be considered. As the name would suggest, and as mentioned earlier, a domestic merger involves the merging of two or more Irish incorporated companies. In order to rely on the merger provisions in Chapter 3 of Part 9 of the Act, at least one of the companies has to be an LTD, and none of the companies can be a PLC. If the merger involves a PLC, you must look at Chapter 16 of Part 17 of the Act. We are sometimes asked whether this means that, for example, two DACs cannot merge, and, for the time being, the answer is no, they cannot, due to Section 462 of the Act. That section requires that at least one of the merging companies be a private company limited by shares, and that term is defined in Section 2 as including companies registered under Part 2 of the Act, i.e. LTDs, and DACs are specifically excluded from the definition. While the solution is to simply include an off-the-shelf LTD in the merger, this is an oversight in the legislation, which will hopefully be addressed by the department sooner rather than later. Tom, once it is established that the companies involved meet the criteria I've just mentioned, next on the list in terms of considerations is how you go about implementing a domestic merger.
2: There are two ways in which a private company can implement a domestic merger, either using the Summary Approval Procedure or SAP, or by going to the High Court. We have discussed the SAP procedure in a separate podcast. And as we outlined, the SAP procedure is a relatively cost and time efficient way of carrying out the various restricted activities, which include mergers. So why then, Suzanne, might a company choose to go to the High Court instead of using the SAP?
0: Some of the reasons why a company might choose to do this include where one of the companies is a PLC as the PLC can't use the summary approval procedure to carry out a merger. Another reason might be if the directors are not comfortable making the director's declaration that forms part of the SAP procedure, they may prefer to have the court in effect bless the transaction. Where it is not possible for one of the merger companies to obtain unanimous shareholder approval, which is a requirement for a SAP merger, as we discussed in an earlier episode on the summary approval procedure. If the transfer or entity has valuable foreign assets, it may be preferable in some jurisdictions to be able to produce the High Court order as evidence to show the official status of the merger and also the merger effective date. Finally, where there are certain registers in Ireland that need to be updated post-merger, the court order process may be preferred over the summary approval procedure. Ashton, do you want to explain why?
1: Yes, this is due to the fact that the provisions of the Act, namely sections 480 subsection 6 and 480 subsection 7, which set out that certain registers in the state be updated on production of a certified copy of a court order, do not apply to SAP approved mergers because the Act does not say that these provisions apply to SAP mergers and because of the fact that the CRO does not issue you with any certificate confirming that the SAP merger has taken place. As a result of this, some companies with, for example, very valuable real estate might be hesitant to use the SAP process in case the property transfer cannot be registered after the fact.
2: Well, if we focus on the SAP process for a moment, it is worth reminding our listeners that when carrying out this type of merger, you need to consider the SAP provisions in Chapter 7 of Part 4 of the Act alongside the merger provisions in Part 9. Briefly, the steps involved in the SAP are as follows. All or a majority of the directors of the company make a declaration. B, the directors making the declaration have to give a separate confirmation called a Section 209 confirmation. C, the shareholders of each merging company unanimously approve the merger. And finally, board approval must be obtained. Chapter 3 of Part 9 goes on to specify many other documents required to carry out a merger and obligations around putting documents on display. The documents required and the information they must contain will vary depending on which of the three types of merger you are undertaking.
0: That's correct, Tom. The key document is the Common Draft Terms of Merger, or CDTs as they are sometimes referred to. This sets out the information such as details of the transferor and successor companies, the assets and liabilities being transferred, the shares to be issued, other than in the case of a merger by absorption, and the effective date of the merger. The use of the term draft indicates that although when approved, the terms have legal standing, the merger has not actually taken place and therefore the terms are still draft. The Common Draft Terms must be improved in writing by the boards of each of the merging companies and will be dated as of the date on which they are approved. There is also a Director's Explanatory Report which explains the Common Draft Terms and the reasons for and consequences of the merger. This report is not required for a merger by absorption and may also be dispensed with in the case of a merger by acquisition or a merger by formation of a new company where certain conditions, including shareholder consent, are met. The Act also provides for an experts report, prepared by a qualified person, setting out details of the share exchange ratio. Again, this report is not required for a merger by absorption and the appointment of an expert may be dispensed with in all mergers where the shareholders agree that it is not required.
1: There is also a requirement that each of the merging companies make available for inspection the CDTs, the statutory financial statements for the preceding three financial years of each company, audited where required under Part 6 of the Act, and the Director's explanatory report and expert's report where required for a period of 30 days before the date of the passing of the shareholder resolution. There is also an option to display the documents on the company's website for a period of two months. Once the shareholder resolutions are passed, the merger will take effect on the date specified in the CDTs. The declaration and section 209 confirmation must be filed in the CRO within 21 days of the merger effective date and the shareholder resolution must be filed with a form G1 within 15 days of the passing of the resolution. Tom, Suzanne, If a company does choose to go the High Court route that you mentioned earlier, is there any overlap with the SAP steps we've just mentioned, or is it an entirely different process?
2: There are a number of common steps. For example, the companies involved will still need to draw up the CDTs, Directors' Explanatory Report and Experts' Report where required, and have the CDTs and Explanatory Report approved in writing by the boards of the merging companies. The requirement to put documents on display and to obtain shareholder approval also applies to a court-approved domestic merger. However, this time it is by way of special resolution and not unanimous resolution of the shareholders. There is also the option to skip this step in the case of the transferor company in a merger by absorption and the successor company in a merger by acquisition where certain conditions are met.
0: There are a few key differences too. For example, an additional document which may be required is the merger financial statement. This will need to be prepared for the latest statutory financial statements of any of the merging companies relate to a financial year end which ended more than six months before the date of the common draft terms and the company is availing of the exemption from the requirement to hold a general meeting. That is, unless all of the shareholders agree to waive the requirement. For the court process, the common draft terms and a notice specifying certain details of the merging companies must be filed with the company's registration office. A notice must be published by the registrar in the CRO Gazette and by each of the merging companies in one national daily newspaper. There is also the option to publish this information on the company's website, provided certain conditions are met.
2: The final key difference is that once the various documents have been prepared, display obligations met and shareholder approval obtained, the merging companies jointly apply to the High Court for an order confirming the merger. The court order will specify the the date that the merger will take place, a certified copy of the order must be filed with the CRO and the Registrar will publish notice of this filing in the CRO Gazette.
1: Thanks Tom and Suzanne. Once a merger is complete, whether it is a SAP or court-approved merger, the Act specifies in Section 480, Subsection 3, the consequences of a merger taking effect. For example, all the assets and liabilities of the transferor are transferred to the successor. The transferor is dissolved. Every contract, agreement or instrument to which the transferor is a party becomes a contract, agreement or instrument between the successor and the counterparty, etc. The next type of merger we come across most often is a cross border merger. Tom, could you tell us where these mergers come from?
2: As mentioned earlier, Irish limited liability companies can also merge with a limited liability company from another EEA state, pursuant to the EU cross border merger regime, which was implemented in Ireland by the European Community's cross border mergers regulations of 2008. In order to use this regime, the merger must involve at least one Irish company and at least one EEA company. You will notice that there is a lot of overlap between the documents and steps required for a cross-border merger and those required for a domestic court-approved merger. This is due to the fact that the provisions of Chapter 3 of Part 9 of the Act are based on the cross-border merger regulations. And this is because when the CLRG were drafting the heads of Bill, there had been dozens of successful cross-border mergers involving Irish companies. And there was a real sense that practitioners were familiar with the approach to merging under the 2008 regulations. Therefore, it made sense to piggyback on the success of the cross-border merger regime rather than create a different one for domestic mergers.
0: That's correct, Tom. There are many similarities. For example... Common draft terms need to be drawn up. A director's explanatory report is required without the exceptions available in the case of a domestic merger. An expert report is required, subject to some exemptions, the same as with the domestic merger regime. The common draft terms and a notice must be filed with the company's registration office by the Irish company. A notice must be published by the registrar in the CRO Gazette and by the Irish company in two national daily newspapers. As is the case in a domestic merger, there is also the option to publish this information on the company's website, provided certain conditions are met. There is a requirement for the Irish company to put certain documents on display. The Common Draft Terms, Director's Explanatory Report and Experts' Report where required for a period of one month before the date in which the general meeting of the Irish company is held. There is also an option to display the documents on the company's website for a period of two months. The Common Draft Terms must be approved by special resolution passed at a general meeting of the Irish company or by way of written shareholder resolution. The same exemptions from the requirement to pass the shareholder resolutions are available as with a domestic merger. However, there are some additional requirements on the successor company in relation to the display of audited annual accounts and an accounting statement.
1: While there are a number of similarities with the domestic merger, there are a few key differences. The court hearing stage of the cross-border merger process, for example, is where the processes differ quite a bit. Before we get into that, it might be helpful at this juncture to distinguish between an inbound and an outbound cross-border merger. An inbound cross-border merger is where the Irish company is a successor company. An outbound cross-border merger is where the Irish company is a transfer or company.
2: Yes, and that distinction becomes important when you look at the types of hearing which will take place in the Irish High Court. At what is called the Regulation 13 hearing, the Irish High Court opines as to whether you satisfy pre-merger requirements. For example, that you've entered into the CDTs, made filings, adhered to the one-month inspection period, in other words, that you did all the procedural steps necessary. If it is an outbound cross-border merger, that is the end of the court process in Ireland. You will get a Regulation 13 certificate or a pre-merger certificate that you complied with the requirements, and you present that to the court or notary in the jurisdiction of the successor company. However, if it is an inbound cross-border merger, the procedure is a Regulation 14 hearing where you present the equivalent of the Regulation 13 certificate issued by the court or notary in the transferor's jurisdiction and ask the court to approve the merger. The court will specify in its order the date on which the merger will take place. A copy of the court order is filed with the CRO and the registrar will publish notice of this filing in the CRO Gazette. In an outbound cross-border merger, the Irish company must deliver a copy of the order made by the court or notary in the successor company's jurisdiction to the CRO and must inform the registrar of the merger's effective date. The consequences of a cross-border merger are the same as with a domestic merger.
0: One final difference worth mentioning is that there are additional provisions in the cross-border merger regulations, which we won't get into in today's podcast, but which protect employee participation rights in companies that are party to the merger.
1: To wrap up this month's podcast, we thought it might be helpful to run through some of the common questions we are asked and some of the things to watch out for in practice. Our first top tip relates to timings. With mergers, and particularly with mergers that are carried out using the SAP, there are numerous timelines set out in the Act which need to be carefully considered and plotted to ensure that they are kept to. For example, with a SAP merger, The shareholder resolution can't be passed more than 12 months before the commencement of the restricted activity. The documents must be put on display for 30 days before the date of the shareholder resolution. The declaration can't be made more than 30 days before the date of the shareholder resolution. And the declaration must be filed in the CRO not more than 21 days after the restricted activity has commenced. We are sometimes asked whether it is possible for a client to carry out a merger within a couple of weeks. However, notwithstanding the fact that it takes time to carry out due diligence on the merging companies, prepare the documents and gather the information needed to populate the documents, the requirement to put certain documents on display for a 30-day period cannot be waived and introduces a mandatory pause in the proceedings.
2: The next point to mention relates to the merger's effective date. While the CDTs in the case of a SAP merger and the court order in the case of a court-approved domestic or cross-border merger, will specify the date on which the merger will take effect. This will not necessarily correspond with the date of designation that will appear when you search for the transfer or company in the CRO post-merger. The second date often correlates to when the CRO registered the documents that were filed in connection with the merger, rather than the effective date of the merger. This doesn't change the effective date, but may cause some confusion if a search is carried out against the dissolved company. And for that reason, when carrying out a SAP merger, it is a good idea to specify in the shareholder resolution the effective date of the merger so that the information is publicly available as a copy of that document will be filed in the CRO, whereas CDCTs are not filed in a SAP merger.
1: We are also sometimes asked if directors can pre-sign the declaration prior to the board meeting. The answer is they cannot. It must be made and signed at the board meeting. It can, however, be signed in counterpart, which I know has been useful for some companies during the pandemic.
2: Finally, and probably most significantly, there is the issue of the financial statements to be put on display. As mentioned earlier, one set of documents that must be put on display for a domestic merger and for a cross-border merger when seeking an exemption from the requirement to hold a general meeting are the financial statements for the preceding three financial years audited where they're required to be audited. Because of the wording used in the legislation, once a financial year ends, the company will be obliged to display those financial statements and they must have been audited if required to be audited. The result of this is that there is generally a blackout period when companies cannot carry out a merger until those financial statements are ready. For example, if a company has a financial year end of 31 December 2021 and wishes to undertake a merger in January 2022, the requirement to display the 2021 audited financial statements is triggered once the financial year ends. However, it's very unlikely that a company's 2021 audited financial statements will be ready until mid-2022 at the earliest, and so it will be unable to carry out a merger until later in 2022.
0: So before we finish, in terms of horizon scanning, it's worth noting that the EU Directive on cross-border mergers has been amended by the 2019 Directive as regards cross-border conversions, mergers and divisions. These amendments aim to streamline the approach in relation to cross-border mergers and also introduce a harmonised framework for cross-border conversions and divisions in respect of limited liability companies within the EU and EEA. Ireland is required to transpose these measures into national law by the 31st of January 2023. So this is a topic we will no doubt be returning to during the course of next year. That concludes today's episode. As usual if you have any questions on anything we discussed today please feel free to contact Tom Ashling or me or your usual Arthur Cox contact. We will be back in the new year with a new episode and in the meantime thank you for listening and goodbye.